Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. 20 years ago, it would have been very hard to get a senior executive from Siemens to join a small startup. And today it's happening. Also, you need those proof points with well-known industrial players, and some of them waste your time. It boils down to your champion on the other side of the table. If you can't see that person, you should probably at some point stop your efforts. Robert Gallenberger loves industrial technologies, a former BMW engineer, MBA from London Business School and BCG consultant, he became a VC over a decade ago and has mostly focused on industry startups ever since. He is now a partner in charge of the Industrial Technology Fund at B2V Partners, an early-stage European VC firm managing over $400 million. Founded 20 years ago as Brains2 Ventures, B2V also built a network of 250 private investors to support their portfolio. In this episode, Robert talks about his transition from industry to investment, his vision on the opportunities in the sector, including 3D printing and the reinvention of supply chains in a post-COVID world. He also shares his approach to investment in industry, as well as practical insights on how startups can avoid wasting time with the wrong industrial partners and what could be done to grow the ecosystem. Hi, Robert. Pleasure to have you today. Glad being here. You started in industry, right? You're originally a mechanical engineer, and so am I, but switched to a lot of non-engineering things later. Correct. So similar story. I studied mechanical engineering in Munich and in Paris, then very traditionally went to do my master thesis at BMW and stayed on, spent in total around four years in the production department before uh, doing an MBA in London back in 2006 and learning about venture capital, which I had never heard of before. And here I am. So you joined several venture capital firms leading you to uh, become a partner at at B2V. Can you tell us about those first years of experience in VC? Well, first of all, I had a hard time back in 2006 to raise the interest of venture firms in my profile. They told me automotive, the last sector we ever want to touch as VCs, but I managed to to get some first projects back then with DFJS Pre in, in London. I did some MBA project for them and also with 3i, which back then was still an active adventure. And then full time, a little bit later, I joined a Belgium firm called GIMF. And four years ago, I switched from GIMF to B2V Partners. And I just read that uh, in your last newsletter that uh, B2V just celebrated its 20th birthday. So happy birthday. And on top of that, uh, you have been also starting a new fund within B2V focused on industrial tech, right? So how did that happen? Thank you for the birthday wishes. Indeed, two days and 20 years ago, B2V was founded in a small town called St. Gallen in eastern Switzerland, actually as a startup itself. So B2V was founded by a team of students which hadn't had large careers, but just got excited about entrepreneurship, having started an entrepreneurship conference, which is today the Start Summit, uh, a very big conference in the meantime. And then they went on and started B2V. Well, uh, a lot of things happened in between, but back in 2018, we launched a dedicated industrial technologies fund. That was the reason I joined B2V. And we're today four partners responsible for this industrial tech fund. And it's covering a lot of industrial sectors and technologies. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so we're pretty agnostic about which particular industrial subsector an innovation is tackling. 
our investment thesis is around the entire industrial value chain. So from engineering software across supply chain, production methods, anything industry 4.0 related, and all the way to after sales and maintenance processes for industrial goods. And we cover the largest subsectors, uh, of course, automotive, aerospace, but also machine building, chemistry, construction, and very much also transversal technologies, which set the basis across many of those industries, like a first investment in the space of quantum computing, like investments we've done pre-fund in the area of uh, photonics, electronics integration, and we'll keep on doing those things. You're one of the few specialized industry funds. What made you feel that there was an opportunity, particularly in Europe and in Germany? So I think from today's perspective, at least I'd like to see the market like this. It's not a rare or a new idea anymore. But when we set things up on a blank sheet of paper back in 2016, Industrial Technologies was not an established investment category, uh, even not within our closest circle of other funds. But we were full partners who had invested for a large part of their careers in this area. We had connections, we had investment experience, and we had a passion for those technologies. And at the same time, we saw a big opportunity in the market of the funds previous last 15 years, having focused more first on B2C, uh, then on mobile technologies, on, on what I would call standard B2B software, but very few people around us would invest in real industrial innovation, especially when it comes to any hardware related things. So we saw a market opportunity and we saw a pretty good spot in Europe to catch this opportunity because we have the talent, we have the universities, we have the incumbents to do the pilot projects, so big industrial groups. And we think we also have a global brand here in Europe and especially in Germany of exporting industrial technologies around the world. And yeah, we're betting on this opportunity to, to create really large and successful companies. So one challenge when raising new funds is you often get the question from limited partners about potential exits. And in industrial tech, there hasn't been that many visible ones. What was your thinking around the exit opportunities? Well, I think, yes, you're right. Uh, those are the typical questions, especially for more institutional investors who haven't seen this category yet established in the market. Especially prior to the first closing, it was all uh, a story on paper. So it wasn't that easy. So I think our strategy was to go first to people who are coming from industry, who have an understanding about the markets we're talking about who have a view on the opportunity as such and are not only relying on past return data, but who can really extrapolate the opportunity into what they think this can deliver in terms of financial returns. Those people were much easier to convince. A lot of those people were driving our first closing. And then we got going with the first investments and gradually also convinced some institutional investors. And at the same time, things were also progressing in the market. We saw exits uh, like Relayer here in Munich to Munich Re. So you had not only a 300 million plus exit right in front of our door, but you also could prove the point that the buyer universe is gradually expanding from the very traditional industrial groups like the Siemens and the GEs of this world all the way to reinsurance groups who have big hopes in this market and are able to write quite large checks. 
And then we had the acquisition of a Dutch company in the no-code area by Siemens for 700 million and a few other landmark transactions, which step-by-step proved our point. Another question that you probably got when you were raising your fund is like, okay, it looks like the industry is transforming, but how about the deal flow? Is there enough startups in Germany or in Europe to justify having a dedicated fund? Absolutely not a problem. And we can show it in the numbers. As mentioned, the four partners running this fund have invested in this category for over 10 years. Uh, so we have the past deal flow data and I can tell you that now we're tracking this, of course, for our LPs and we've been uh, steadily increasing deal flow over the last four years from 500 plus to a thousand plus per year. So I think we're covering a large enough area and there's enough talent and excitement out there to have a significant pool of investment opportunities. How would you describe the variety in the profiles of founders? Historically, this was an area of people coming from research institutes and universities, having done fundamental research on semiconductor materials or similar things and then forming companies. It has broadened a lot over the last years. So we see now quite some diversity in founder profiles. While this initial profile still exists and still is very relevant, we do invest in quite a few things which at the origin have 10 plus years of really high-end university research. And this cannot be that easily done with two people in half a year in a garage. So that profile is not replaced at all. But we see additional setups of founders coming from industry, people stopping their university careers, even a typical textbook situation. And I think that that adds a lot to the sector. One important trend is it has been increasingly easier for a small founder group doing something in industrial technologies to then hire experienced people from industry and adding the industrial experience and the gray hair. And I think this is something 20 years ago, it would have been probably very hard to get a senior executive from Siemens to end his career with Siemens and forego the, the pension scheme and join a small startup. And today it's happening. And today they're, they're really a significant group of people who are looking for those opportunities to switch careers and to, to move into startups. So what do you think that is? Maybe there's more bridges to go back to industry or to go back to academia? Or is it a change of mindset? I think it's both. It's individual and, and structural. I think industry is becoming less rigid and maybe also less secure, less predictable. In a way, maybe you're not risking that much because next year your business unit might have been dissolved or sold to a competitor. So why not leave this year and join a startup? And I think there are also changes in the personal aspirations for a career path. And I think people see the value, see the upside, see the fun on the startup side. That's not for everybody, but there is a significant group of candidates now available, which wasn't available before. That uh, sounds like a very positive trend in the industry and really favorable for the creation of startups. Above what I just mentioned, people have an ambition to create something and to be part of the creation of something new. And they're increasingly, I would say, not getting that on the big corporate side. That's a big driver to join a startup for those people. You're covering broadly industrial technologies. Are there particular sectors within industry that seem to be more active, more at the forefront of things, and others that are more lagging? 
We're also tracking those investment themes for our LPs on an annual basis or quarter by quarter even. And yes, we see a few obvious trends. So I think there is increasing activity and deal flow around anything related to industrial data points, to the collection of data points with sensor technology, to the treatment and communication path of this information and then the, the algorithm level to create something useful and to uh, create a predictive maintenance algorithm as an example or a process optimization. That is on the rise for the last four years in our data. And on the other hand, we see slightly less uh, environmental technologies might have to do with the branding and positioning of our fund. Uh, while, while we would love to see more of those things, we see that fully included in our uh, investment mandate. But I, I personally have the impression that over the last years, it has gotten less founder attention, uh, specifically renewable energy uh, and to some extent environmental technologies. And hopefully it, it will come back with the discussions out there right now. In industry, are you looking at particular vertical sectors such as oil and gas, textile, automotive would be one, chemistry? Or are you across everything or do you have particular focuses? No, we're not chasing a sector. We're rather chasing technologies and fields of innovation where we see uh, potential. There's often this question among investors whether you should have a strong thesis or whether you should be very opportunistic. How would you define your approach between those two? That's a good one uh, and difficult one. Uh, I'd say our thesis is pretty high level. We think there is a big opportunity in industry. And within that definition, we become very opportunistic and try to identify the technologies which have most potential and which have also a certain breadth of use cases. So, for example, not being fully dependent purely on the automotive industry, but being able to serve different industrial use cases. So we're, for example, quite active in 3D printing. We have done an investment on the post-processing side. We have done an investment on the material side. One of them is targeting more the polymer part of the market. The other one is targeting the metal part of the market. And we're looking at further innovation within 3D printing. And it's quite exciting, especially these days with the Corona challenges, how broad the potential applications are. So obviously it is automotive and aerospace, but it's, for example, also a lot of med tech opportunities for 3D printing which these days are completely non-correlated with automotive demand. And that's a good thing. So what you're saying is that around 3D printing, people are mostly familiar with consumer level 3D printing with like plastic uh, objects. But you're saying that it sounds like now some of the printing technologies themselves are mature enough that the interesting opportunities are around the processes to transform those unpolished pieces into usable pieces you can put into machines or people in the case of medtech in some cases and also research that goes into more like chemistry and material science about having particular properties of 3d printed material yeah on a high level the very exciting thing of 3d printing these days is the shift from prototyping to serial manufacturing and that means that you need to complete the process chain it's not it's not anymore a technology for a manual workshop it's now becoming a technology for an, an industrial shop floor and there suddenly you need an entire and fully automated process chain what kind of applications could you mention there the things which are published, for example, by our portfolio company Dimension, that's the post-processing company, are use cases, uh, for example, of replacing spare parts or 
offering spare part printing on demand on the truck side, on the bus side. It's still not the uh, double digit million number of pieces per year, but it's already very significant batch sizes on an annual basis. And that's a company that's already selling their process to do the finishing of the parts, right? That's a company with hundreds of industrial machines out there in the market, yes. Wow. It's interesting because that's something that really happens largely out of sight. Most people and most consumers have no idea how 3D printing has been embraced by industry at different levels. And in some cases, we hear about some medical applications like in dental or sometimes a bone replacement or, or these type of things. But uh, in industry, generally, uh, the media coverage focuses on like spectacular things like a rocket engine, but not on all the unglamorous things that happen in like buses, trucks and spare parts and all those things. So it's interesting to see that uh, there's now a very, very strong reality to it, even though the promise of 3D printing from 10 plus years ago hasn't reached the consumers, it's already a reality in industry. Absolutely. So if you would look at the part which goes into this bus, uh, it's a cover. It's a completely non-sexy part. It doesn't even look like 3D printed. It doesn't have a very fancy structure, but there is a very real business case to replace the molds and to print on demand in the future, even in a decentral uh, structure to create the spare parts you need. To take a step back uh, and talk about industrial tech, what differences do you see between those companies combining hardware and software versus the pure software ones? So quite a few, to be honest. And of course, there's a reason why some investors focus on pure software solution. And there is a reason why you need a slightly different set of experiences to judge whenever there's hardware involved. So in the very first place, when you have hardware, the development cycles look different. So it usually takes a bit more time and it usually takes a bit more capital because you need somebody to produce first pieces for you and then you apply some changes uh, and you need another batch of actual hardware being delivered to you. So time and money is a big difference in the very first development steps. And it becomes even more critical once you start delivering your product in larger quantities because you need to think about physical distribution. And again, it takes time and money. And if you are shipping a product which is not 100% doing its job or has some problem, you can't just send out an update via the internet. You need to either send people around the world to fix the problem, or you need to have your customers send in the hardware and ship new hardware again. And we're talking about, in some cases, completely different timescales. We're talking about different capital needs at different points in time. We're talking about a skill set, which to some extent you don't need in a pure software company. So it's often there's this idea that a hardware company is going to cost a lot more money uh, than a software company to get to scale. And sometimes we also come across data that shows that actually, a, let's say a SaaS company will actually need to spend lots of money on marketing and user acquisition to get to this kind of lifetime value measurement that makes it a repeatable business and that actually hardware companies in some cases can get to market on less money and acquire users for less with better margins. How do you see those metrics comparing? That's exactly the point. Is it more money? I think it's different amounts of, of capital at different points in time. And I think overall, you're right. We would also see in our deal flow, we hope to see companies which uh, in terms of to total capital needs are far below the big SaaS successes out there. 
I think you need a bit more money in the very beginning. So you most of the times can't do a first prototype or even get to your first real product with a few hundred K angel money that for many hardware products just won't work. It is compensated to some extent that you have public funding available for these type of innovations, which you don't have on the software side, especially here in Europe. I think you still then need a little bit more money to get the product out. But you have completely different lock-in effects with many of the industrial hardware products that we see. And you have a very different market dynamic around marketing, right? If you have an exciting innovation, which you sell to professionals in a B2B business model, those are people who talk to each other. There's not the same marketing spend uh, needed to ramp up as you might have on the software side. That means the hardware business might actually end up being a bit more costly at the beginning, but eventually more capital efficient. And with a marketing spend that could be way below what maybe a SaaS company would have to spend. Yes, as long as you don't have to reinvent your own production line and your own production facility. Uh, we see those and we have seen those cases, of course, in the past as well. When Solar got started, you had to reinvent your production technologies, your hardware, and you had to build factories. That's on a different scale and that led to problems. But most of what we see today is actually relying on existing manufacturing uh, capacity in an almost pay-per-use for the relevant startups. You are four partners with long experience in industrial technologies. What do you feel is the knowledge necessary to be able to make those investments? Do you feel you have everything already set within your team? Do you rely on outside expertise? And do you feel that an investor that doesn't have industrial tech experience could also play a role investing in that sector? So first of all, of course, we're almost never the experts when we go into the details of a very specific innovation or technology, right? I mean, on, in some areas, we might have had investments before. So those investments might have educated us a little bit to have initial judgment. But in many areas, even though we're doing this for 10 plus years, we're seeing things for the first time. Nonetheless, I think it helps a lot to be four partners around the table who have an affinity to, to industrial technologies and who have seen quite a few things in the past, uh, even done those things in operational roles before or in their academia career, because we hopefully have a minimum of understanding to ask the right questions, to understand what we don't understand, and to access those experts that know much more than we do and to listen carefully what they tell us. On top of that, the big advantage of B2V partners as a company is that we not only have the fund investment activity, but that we have our legacy and strongest asset, which is a private investor network of more than 250 private individuals, many of them having created companies or managing companies in industry. And so we can access a large pool of people who know much more than we do and hopefully ask the right questions so that they make us smarter. You have this network of investors. Do you have other networks that you rely on? So next to the B2B private investor network, uh, we also have a limited partner base to our fund, which to quite some extent has its origin in industry or industrial know-how. We have individuals as LPs who we can access and who have relevant experience themselves. And again, networks of people we can then access through those people, all the way to industrial companies who also supported our funds and where we can ask for real-world evidence on certain technologies. 
We've gathered, of course, as I mentioned, through our 50 past investments, a relevant number of expert connections to research institutes, to consultants, technical consultants, to entrepreneurs who we can access and ask our questions. Have you come across in your deal flow some companies for which you felt you were actually totally out of your depth in terms of sector knowledge or technology? And then even digging through your network, you were like, still, we don't, we don't get this. We don't understand this. Yes, this happens. And usually we tend then to say, this is not for us. If we, if we don't manage to get to a minimum of understanding what a company is trying to do, we probably won't invest. It must be fairly uncommon because you've done deals like all the way to quantum technology, which is pretty hairy sector. So it looks like you're doing fine. And on the other hand, have you come across pitches where you looked at it and you were like, no way this is possible. This can't be true. And then digging further, you realize it actually wasn't true or wasn't as proven as the founders were pretending to say. To be very honest, those pitches who raise very fundamental questions about the physical validity, we rarely dig deeper. Maybe we should if we had the time, but I think if somebody doesn't get across in his pitch deck that it works and cannot deliver enough validation points to balance out our doubts, we probably don't go further. I guess I won't be pitching to you my anti-gravity beam. Well, you need to put some smart arguments into the presentation, but, <laughs> but we have these perpetuum mobile things in our deal flow and we just can't give them much attention, to be honest. So no, nothing that defy the laws of physics. Within your recent deals, what level of maturity did you encounter them and at what point did you decide to invest in them? Very generally speaking, I think we've learned that it's difficult with a closed-end fund with a 10-year lifetime to invest too early in some industrial technologies. So while we would love to get involved at a very early stage of technology development, we try to discipline ourselves and usually only come in once the first industrial proof points are there. So industrial proof points is not necessarily a revenue uh, to industrial customers, but it is a user in industry having touched or used the product, validated that it works, and being able to give a reference to us in, as investors that, yes, it solves a problem. Yes, there's a willingness to pay. This is the order of magnitude we, we could imagine to pay for this product, etc. In some rare cases and in some fundamental technology shifts like quantum computing, we accept to invest while this is not available. That sounds very pragmatic and reasonable. Thinking about the founders' point of view, what advice would you have to founders of industrial startups? And like one you, you already mentioned was to say, try to get a proof point from industry, but let's say they don't have that. What do you see generally lacking in pitches and that, that could be improved? With quite some teams, a lack of sales and marketing skills, which I think is completely normal in our sector, because that's usually not the background of the inventors. It's usually not the background of the very first founding team. What we want to see is an awareness for this fact and an openness to change things over time and bring in sales and marketing skills and experience at the top management level. Understanding what they're missing and what they could be doing to improve. It. Absolutely. On the industrial side, how can founders figure out where they're wasting their time pitching companies that are not ready versus companies that are ready? Are there ways to figure that out? That's probably the most difficult question in our field of investments, right? Because you need those industrial proof points with well-known industrial players, and some of them are very large 
and some of them waste your time and you'll never get anywhere and they just suck your resources as an early startup team. And others are really good partners. So we don't have a black and white list on this. We just try to make our teams aware of the fact. And it's to some extent the sales and marketing skills I was mentioning before. You need to test also the willingness to pay, also the willingness to pay significant amounts at the right point in time and not just do uh, education work for free for too long. I think it's not necessarily a question of size of the industrial partner on the other side. I think it's a question of mindset of the company. You can probably judge a little bit how this company views innovation as such. Is there talk from the top about collaboration with young uh, startups? Is there communication from the top about the importance of innovation? I would be careful if there's not. And then in the end, it boils down to the champion, to your champion on the other side of the table, right? Almost always, if you're really bringing something new to established industrial processes, you need somebody on the customer side to work really hard for you. If you can't see that person, you should probably at some point stop uh, your efforts. That sounds very pragmatic. Within your portfolio, what kind of successes have you seen in getting that initial engagement? Does it generally come from personal connections that were prior to the company? Or does it come from uh, being featured in some uh, events or media? So is it more like outreach by the startups or more like inbound from visibility efforts? How, how does those initial contacts work the best? I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. I, I think it's all of the above. I think there is not this single communication or marketing channel which works best for our type of technologies. I think it's really finding the right person on the other side and building a relationship and having him push as hard as he can to make it happen. Identifying that champion. Yeah, we, we really see the, the full spectrum, right? We, we see some of our companies who are hugely successful with, with physical trade shows. Let's see how this goes in the current circumstances. Yeah. We see people who are really successful with online marketing. And we see some teams which is just, they just don't use any of the traditional marketing channels, but it's just talk in the industry. All of this can work well. It depends on the specific sector and on the way this sector works. To wrap up some of that, what kind of changes would you like to see in the ecosystem that would help improve the general environment? Let's maybe start with industrial corporates. They're part of our thesis, right? That's what I said in the beginning. That's part of why we think there's this opportunity is a European opportunity because we have many of those global industrial leaders being headquartered here. And we think we can only catch this opportunity together with them. So I think this is much less about disrupting those people as it was maybe in new media and in other fields of VC investment. Here, I think it's about creating a success together. And we see some of them embracing that idea and doing exactly the right things. And we need more of those corporations which realize it's not all internal R&D anymore. It's external open innovation. And that means making other startups, other smaller companies out there successful together with you and not squeezing them against the wall. I think there is a fact that still today we need those industrial corporates also as source of capital because there are not enough independent venture funds, which then all the way lead the growth rounds and, and get our companies uh, to exit. So at least in the past, we were to some extent also dependent on, on the capital coming from corporate investors. And there I would like to see uh, more stability. Uh, so now is the another proof point uh, with the COVID crisis. 
if all the corporates drop their participations and don't participate anymore in the follow-on rounds, they send terrible signals to the investment world of what those companies are worth, of what this technology is worth. So they, they need to stay in the game. And I think they need to follow the best practice uh, of what some corporate investors have shown. What you're saying is actually quite an important point. If due to the COVID crisis, industrial players stop engaging with startups, it will make VCs hesitant to put money into companies like that. It will probably make also founders hesitant to start companies. And then there might just be a period of time during which there won't be that many good startups to engage with because of that effect. Yes, exactly. They need to see it as a long-term engagement. It needs to endure some of the economic crisis, which we'll have at any point in time. And one is out there right now. As a final question, I'd like to ask you, are there personalities or things that inspire you in this industrial sector or more broadly in your work? Well, honestly, I won't name any famous persons here. Everybody can think about some of those names. In a recent conversation I had with the founder of Hello Tomorrow and also of a biotech startup, I was asking him that question. And he said, for him, the most inspiring person is uh, Louis Pasteur, who invented the vaccine. And for him, is a great example of a biology entrepreneur. On the one hand, he was saying is that actually what inspires and really helps him are other founders who are two or three years ahead of him. It's really the founders in our portfolio, which inspire me in, in our daily work. So I won't pick one to put them above the others, but the energy they bring to the table on a daily basis and their conviction that uh, there will be huge successes in industrial technologies, VC financed, fast growing, fast paced. That passion really inspires me on a daily basis. I, I follow them at least as much as they might follow me in some discussions in the boardroom. To me, it sounds like it's almost like an industrial renaissance because there was uh, this wave of industrial groups and family-owned uh, businesses, some of them grew into conglomerates in Germany. And then now you see another wave of industrial innovation that might lead to the different type of companies and different type of innovation, but uh, maybe also uh, enduring global companies. Absolutely. And I think it's driven by where the talent goes in the end. And for quite some decades, all the engineering talent went to the big industrial groups and they did great things and they made them large and successful. And we see to quite some extent the engineering talent now goes towards the startup world. And that's why we believe there will be really big successes. Robert, it sounds like you're in the right spot at the right time. And I wish you all the success possible in that new industrial wave. Thanks for that. Thanks for listening. For more details on Robert or B2V, head over to their website, their Twitter, or their Medium post on their 20th anniversary. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV, or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet.